To Acts 18, we turn our attention. We continue to make our way through this book of the Bible, this marvelous record from Dr. Luke. Part two of his uh, orderly account for Theophilus. You remember we made our way through the Gospel of Luke, the first part of his record for Theophilus. Now we've been making our way through part two of the book of Acts, the continuing work of Christ, even ascended into heaven. Chapter 18, we'll be reading the first 17 verses. Let me fill in, the, in a little bit for you, or at least some of the context. When last we saw Paul, he was in Athens. He was reasoning with the people in the Jewish synagogue, the Jews and devout people, and in the marketplace, which led to that sermon that the Areopagus, where the philosophers would gather, where he proclaimed to them the God who, to that point, they had called unknown, as it was inscribed on their altar, the unknown God. His friends who delivered him to Athens may have intended for Paul to enjoy a short vacation, but for Paul, as for all devout Christians, there is no vacation from the gospel. This, brothers and sisters, this is our moment, our short, our fleeting moment to proclaim the gospel to the dying with whom we rub shoulders every day, like Paul did in his. We know that Paul had been waiting in Athens for the arrival of Timothy and Silas, whom he had left behind in Berea. Evidently, they did join him. Dr. Luke doesn't record it for us here, but Paul later wrote to the Thessalonians and recounted his two companions, had indeed made it to Athens, but had been sent back again, Timothy to Thessalonica, and Silas, it is supposed, to Philippi. From there, Paul traveled southwest, to Corinth, and in doing so, Paul was departing from what had been considered, now it was fading in Paul's day, but it had been considered the cultural capital of the world, Athens, then to enter into the social and political capital of that region anyway, Corinth. It was also a city proverbial for its immorality, the Greek word for Playing the Corinthian, or to play the Corinthian, has been for 400, had been for 400 years a euphemism for fornication, for sexual immorality. I could bore you with a lot of history and facts about Corinth, which you may study for yourself later on, but it is of some interest to you, I think, perhaps, as we enter into these Winter Olympics uh, in a couple of weeks or whenever they start pretty soon here. Uh, that uh, games were also held in Corinth, in the area of Corinth, the Isthmian Games, they were called. Uh, A word, by the way, that I'm very proud to have been able just now to say to you, Isthmian. Uh, I probably am am mispronouncing it, but at any rate, those were the games near Corinth, uh, held in honor of the god Poseidon, an event second only to the Olympics, held in the Greek city of Olympia every four years in honor of the god Zeus. There was no ski slalom or um, snowboarding event in those days back then, which is probably just as well for them, uh, since the games that ranged from foot races to wrestling and discus and javelin and boxing were all done in the nude. It's uh, interesting to think that Paul may certainly have been in Corinth, when the Isthmian Games took place, 
He stayed for at least 18 months there, and uh, that for, the, for a purpose, and that an important city for establishing the church, not only in that city, but in surrounding areas too. I'll throw in for free that uh, following the apostolic example, our own presbytery has had her eye these recent days on planting a church in Springfield, Illinois, an important capital city in our own region and strategic for the kingdom too. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word and we recognize that that we are people who have been saved by one thing, and that is by your grace, and who therefore need constantly to depend upon that grace. Once again, we throw ourselves, we cast ourselves upon you now for the grace to receive your word, for the grace of ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That is no small passage in the scripture. This is a a huge uh, indication of Paul's ministry and a great shift that we know already about Paul from before, from his conversion. That he was apostle to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. (laughs) Think about that. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, you may spot immediately what looks like a contradiction. God has promised No one will attack him, and now they're attacking him. But remember, God promised that no one would attack him to harm him. Brought him before the tribunal, verse 13, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. I have shamelessly taken, as the title of my sermon this morning, the title of J.I. Packer's book published in the 1960s and republished and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted under the name Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Now those two, evangelism, the passionate proclamation and the sharing of the gospel, on the one hand, and God's sovereignty, his absolute rule over all things and all men, on the other, have sometimes been pitted against one another in Christian circles, as if they were mutually exclusive. And to the limited human mind, they might, on the surface of them, indeed seem to be in conflict. Alas, disagreements about the relationship between these two have led to deep divisions even in the church and church splits over the years and have actually and ironically had the effect of hindering the spread of the gospel. Of course, the real conflict, you see I put that in quotation marks, runs a little deeper than evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Behind evangelism, implied by evangelism, underlying evangelism, is human responsibility. Responsibility both to proclaim the gospel and to receive the gospel. And a species of sovereignty, of the total and complete rule of God over all things and all men, is election. The biblical doctrine of God choosing whom he will save, and the gracious impartation to that person of all that is needed for him or her to be saved. There's the struggle. You see, in our minds, anyway. How can it be that God specifically and unalterably has chosen from all eternity whom he will save based on nothing in them, either good or bad, and that people must believe, are responsible to believe, will be held to account for whether or not they believed the gospel when it came to them, and as a result, find themselves forever in heaven or in hell according to their free choice. And somehow shall we reconcile real, genuine Human responsibility with real, genuine, divine sovereignty. The short answer is, we can't. Our minds are just too small 
Too small, too limited to take in and to synthesize these two thoughts. We must hold them both. We must hold them both to be true. We must believe them both. We must live by them both without the satisfaction of harmonizing them into one simple truth. And there is no contradiction here, by the way. There is no conflict. The Bible simply and straightforwardly and unapologetically teaches both, sometimes in isolation, one over here, one over there, sometimes, as in the passage before us, cheek to jowl, smack up against one another, side by side, as in this history in Corinth. Paul was evangelizing, he was proclaiming the gospel tirelessly and with great difficulty, which leads me to the first point to point out to you the genuine responsibility of human beings. That's the first point. Man is genuinely responsible. Responsible on two levels. First, we Christians are responsible to proclaim, to spread, to share the gospel. Paul is particularly marvelous as an example of embracing that very responsibility, but we all share in it. We have all received a great gift. We have received eternal life. We've come into both the knowledge of and possession of the greatest news ever. If for no other reason than the law of love compels us to share that great news with others. Remember those lepers outside Samaria in 2 Kings, uh, Kings 7? The men who first discovered that Israel's enemies had been scattered. In their excitement, they started looting the Syrians' camp, snatching up valuables, for themselves, hiding them away, thinking only of themselves, but then suddenly their consciences take hold of them. This is not right. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be keeping this to ourselves. This is a day of good news. And just so, this, this is a day of good news, my brothers and sisters. And you have it. You know the good news. You know the news that if people will but repent of their sin and turn by faith to Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And you know full well that it is simply not right for you to keep that news to yourself. It's our responsibility every one of us, to bring that good news to those who are around us. It's our duty, our genuine responsibility to look for opportunities in our day-to-day interactions for doing just that, for introducing into those conversations with unbelievers some seed, something for Christ, something to pepper that conversation and move it at least toward eternal things. Love for our neighbors, who must spend the rest of eternity, the rest of eternity, in heaven or in hell, constrains us to do this. 
Paul was acting according to his responsibility in Corinth and that sex and sports saturated culture. And we are responsible to do the same in our own sex and sports saturated culture. Second, human beings are responsible to receive that gospel, to believe it, to repent as it commands them to do, and to believe in and follow Jesus Christ in order to be saved, and equally responsible if they reject it. When Paul brought that good news to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, or that the Christ was Jesus, they returned his love with hatred, with reviling, with contempt, with opposition. He, in turn, responded with an interesting little ritual. He shook out his garments in their presence. And had he had sandals on, which he probably had left at the entrance to the synagogue when he came in, he probably would have shook the dust off of them. Remember how Jesus instructed the disciples to shake the dust off their feet when they saw that their listeners would not receive the gospel message that they brought. Of course, we can remember Nehemiah shaking his robes as a sign of rejection of those who broke faith with God. But at any rate, Paul leaves no doubt as to the meaning of his action. In verse 6, he says, your blood be on your own heads. Your blood's on your own heads. I am innocent. In other words, it was their responsibility to receive and accept the message that Paul brought them concerning Jesus and for rejecting it and him, that is Jesus, they were 100% to blame. Their blood was on their heads, no one else's. This is always and everywhere the Bible's perspective on those who reject the good news. The one who rejects Christ no one to blame but himself. The one thing the Bible never, ever allows an unbeliever to say or do is to shrug his shoulders and say, well, I guess I'm not one of the elect. It's an option the Bible never leaves open. As Packer has it, quote, the unbeliever was really offered life in the gospel and could have had it if he would. He and no one but he is responsible for the fact that he rejected it and must now endure the consequences of rejecting it. Bishop J.C. Ryle similarly wrote, It is a leading principle that man can lose his own soul. That if he is lost at last, it will be his own fault and his blood will be on his own head. The same inspired Bible, he went on to say, which reveals this doctrine of election, is the Bible which contains the words of God. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ye will not come unto me, that ye might, be, might have life. Remember how Jesus put it? Right after that most famous of words in John 3, 16, the promise of eternal life for all who will believe, he went on to say in a verse that you will never see hanging, by the way, from a balcony at a baseball stadium, these words in John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. 
because their deeds were evil. God gives people what they choose. They choose death, they get death. And they have only themselves to blame for that choice. According to the Bible's own verdict, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? So human responsibility, both to spread the gospel and to receive it. 100% unalloyed, pure, distilled responsibility. Second, note well the 100% unalloyed, pure sovereignty of God and salvation. A discouraged Paul, or at least fearful, he'll later write to the Corinthians in a letter, and he'll tell them, he'll confess in that letter to them, not that they didn't understand that already, but that he was uh, with them in weakness and in fear, he will tell them in 1 Corinthians 2. This Paul, fearful and discouraged, is met by the Lord in a vision, verse 9. And the Lord says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Remember those words? I am with you. Not the words we're looking at this morning. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see that? Paul is to stay there and to labor despite opposition, despite rejection and his fear. Why? Because Jesus tells him, because I have many in this city. <laughs> what an encouragement. Paul, your labors will not be in vain. Your labors will bear fruit. We've already seen here in the book of Acts how God appoints people to eternal life. Luke said that straight, flat out in chapter 13. And in chapter 16, we learn that it is God who opens the heart to receive the good news of Jesus, as he did Lydia's in Philippi, and brings them to salvation and to eternal life. I have many such people here in this city, the Lord tells them. They haven't heard yet. They haven't believed yet. But they would. Why? Why would they believe? Why would they repent when they heard the gospel? Simply this. Because they had been chosen by God for eternal life long before they had ever heard the name Jesus. In due course, Paul would see that all unfolding before his own eyes as the gospel, rejected by many, would nevertheless be received by and spring up in the hearts of others in Corinth, both Jews and Gentiles. As many as were appointed to eternal life in Corinth believed. Later on, in his letter to the Romans, Paul would explain this very simple principle, which is just as true and just as operative in the world today, in your very own neighborhood. This is true, your next-door neighbors. This is true of them, of some of them. In this simple quote, God speaking to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Pure and simple. God has chosen some for salvation, 
And when God decides on something, or in this case, someone, do you think it's going to happen? God is God. He is sovereign, and he's sovereign in salvation. Now, you know that some people fear that what I just said just now to you may lead Christians, may lead you to conclude that evangelism really is worthless, pointless, futile. They fear that the conclusion of this will be that if God has already chosen whom he will save, then they will be saved no matter what I say or don't say. Do or don't do. So why fuss with it? Why spend these thousands of dollars sending missionaries all over the world? Why, why introduce in an otherwise harmonious relationship with my neighbor something like hell and heaven and Jesus? If he's going to be saved, he's going to be saved. It is, of course, a wrong conclusion that some have taken and that many act as though they have taken. A wrong conclusion and one to which the Bible never leads us. And you know, you all know better anyway. I think I'm preaching to the choir here. You know that the same Jesus who told Paul that he had people in Corinth who already belonged to him also made it his last command to us before ascending into heaven. Go, make disciples of all the nations. And there is no contradiction between those two in the divine mind. And really, if you think about it, they go hand in hand in at least this very important way. Far from abolishing evangelism, divine sovereignty actually establishes it. Packer says it so much better than I, so I'll let you hear it from him. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile useless enterprise the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. He's right, of course. But let me put it in the positive. Because of the sovereign grace of God, evangelism is the most important enterprise the world has ever seen, short of worship. There is no important thing for us to do short of what we're doing right now than worshiping God than for us to spread the gospel of the good news of eternal life in Christ. And it's certain, certain that evangelism will bear fruit for the Lord has people chosen and ready to hear that gospel from your lips. Which ones? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice to know? Wouldn't it be nice just to 
cut to the chase, wouldn't it? Show me which ones, I'm going to go to them. But we don't know. God's not told us which ones. We can't know. Paul didn't know. Walking down the busy streets of Corinth, looking at face after face after face in the market, he didn't know which ones were those that the Lord was talking about, who had been chosen by him, who were his people. Some of them would come. They were the ones who were appointed to come. And if he remained faithful to evangelize far and wide, he would have the privilege of seeing them drawn to Jesus by the velvet cords of the grace of God. Or maybe he would have the privilege to plant the seed that someone else would water, someone else would reap. What's the diff? They would come. My brothers and sisters, you rub shoulders almost every day with people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Tell them. Tell them. Don't keep this good news to yourself. How could we? Not when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were lost in the darkness, would you not that your neighbor light a match? If you were still bound for eternal punishment for your ignorance of the gospel, would you not that someone would tell you about Jesus? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love constrains us to tell them. Divine sovereignty steals us for this task. God's election gives us confidence that the work is not in vain. That God's word shall not return to him empty, but shall accomplish all that for which he purposes. We have work to do, my brothers and sisters. We have a calling and a responsibility to fulfill to the best of our ability. Now, will everyone with whom you share the gospel receive it well? <laughs> you know the answer, don't you? Look at Paul. But the fact that many will not receive the message gladly only makes us all the more determined to ensure that the message is communicated as well as we can possibly do it. And dear flock, even just a few even just one will make it all worth it. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I bravely do my part to win that soul for thee. And when I come to the beautiful city and the saved all around me appear, I want to hear someone tell me, it was you who invited me here. Amen.